ways that it could really get across a point. One was the use of superlatives like this. Wow, you are really, really, and I mean really, looking happy tonight. That's the superlatives. Okay. But then it had a second way of doing it, and that was repetition. And what you're just seeing is the Apostle Paul really getting across a theme, a point that is on his heart. He's using repetition. He's saying, make my joy complete by being unified. And then he tells them how to do that, like in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So he's talking about unity in the church. He's not talking about unity among Democrats and Republicans. He's not talking about unity in the neighborhood. He's talking about unity in the church. Above all else, the church, we, the family of God, must maintain unity. And then he tells us how. And what he says is we must And if you're married or if you're in the same home with each other and you're fighting, it's really awkward. You're like avoiding each other. One of you's got to break the ice, but you don't want to be the first one to do it. I mean, it's just not good when there's disunity in our families. We are to love each other like Jesus loves us. And being in full accord with each other is part of how we love. Did you hear that? Jesus commanded us, love one another as I have loved you. He's talking about the church. And I'm telling you, Paul's telling you, that one of the ways that you display the love of Jesus is in humble unity. But we have a problem. Now, here's where we get very, very um, subterranean. In other words, I'm going to go below ground and I'm going to go down into your hearts. Now we're going to begin to look, see how we can apply the gospel. You have a problem. I have a problem. And that problem is what Martin Luther identified. It's a universal problem. It's a problem that Christians have. It's a problem that non-believers have. He called it homo incurvatus in C. What that means is homo man in curvatus, curves in, in C on himself. That's Latin. He says the essence of sin is to curve in, to turn into yourself so that you matter more than everybody. You become the center of your life. Now listen, you got to hear this because this problem plagues all of us. The force that causes you to curve in, causes me to curve in, is pride. It's the root 
of every single sin. Now I'm going to teach you something. If you leave here after the service and you get mad at somebody and you just unleash a tirade of profanity on them, that is what the Bible calls sin. But now listen, you will not be able to change that if you want change. You won't be able to change what comes out of your mouth until you begin to understand and identify that there is a sin below your sin. And the sin below your sin, it's not that you have a foul mouth, it's you have a foul heart. And the gospel aims at the subterranean level of your heart. If you want to stop foul language that is springing out of you from pride, then you've got to see the sin below the sin, and that is pride. You've got to identify your pride. The force in your heart that curves you in is pride, and it damages unity in every single relationship, family, friends, fellowship. Pride elevates yourself over others. It is what made Mouse feel superior to Camel. It's why he demanded that Camel did whatever he wanted. And whether you are a Christian or not, pride is lurking in your heart. And you will not see it clearly in yourself. You're not going to be able to see it. You know why? Pride is so terrible that it has the ability to blind you to it. The way that you see pride is when God exposes it, and he will do it through his word, his spirit, and his people. His word, his spirit, and his people. You see, Mouse could not see his pride. Or if he, if he did, he would have been filled with godly sorrow. Here's how I know when you and I cannot see your, our pride. Do we speak of it as a matter of fact? Yeah, you know why I struggle with pride. Yeah, I'm really sorry. I got a lot of pride. Listen, you don't see your pride. You do not see it the way God sees it. If you saw your pride the way God sees your pride, you would fall onto your face in repentance. If there is not godly sorrow that leads to repentance, then you have not seen the sin below your sin. You have not seen your pride. You are not really seeing how terribly you are curving in on yourself. See, the ancient Greek and, and Roman world is called the Greco-Roman world. The ancient world in the first century when Paul wrote this, listen, they despised the virtue of humility. They did not even call it a virtue. They said humility was for slaves. Humility was shameful to the ancient world. 
what was a virtue to the world in Paul's day when he wrote this in Philippians 2 was bringing honor to yourselves, bringing attention to yourselves, bringing fame, earning it. That was a virtue, not humility. So Paul says in verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition is the motivation to bring yourself honor, to put yourself in the spotlight. Selfish ambition, when you get in trouble, when you get caught, puts the spin on it so it really looks like it's somebody else's fault and it's not really yours. That's curving in on yourself. That's springing forth from pride. That's the sin below the sin. That is selfish ambition. Conceit is empty pride. If you ever meet a very prideful, like an outwardly prideful person, and they're boasting all the time, listen, the only reason we boast pridefully is when we don't really have anything to boast about. We're trying to convince people that what is there is there, but it's not actually there. So if you're a boastful person, listen, I gotta tell you, you're an incredibly empty person. You don't even have what it is you're boasting about. It's a lie, it's a charade. And you're trying to curve in on yourself. The sin below the sin is to bring all people to see you in a light that is not the reality. See, if you really possess what you're boasting about, you would not need to boast. You would not need to convince people it's there. So Paul warns, do not curb in on yourself. It will always destroy unity with the people in your life. But he goes on and look at verse three. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. All right, well, what is humility? Now listen, this is utterly, utterly important that you understand what it is. It means lowliness of mind. It means you have a desire to lie low to the ground. Now watch my hands for a second, because pride and humility always work like a teeter-totter in your hearts, okay? Pride always wants to move you to exalt yourself so that you're up here and everybody else is down here, including God. But when true humility comes into your heart, you lie low to the ground so that others and God are higher than you, and you are lower than them. That means you want others to get the credit. You want others to be in the spotlight. You want others to be honored. You want others to be glorified. You want others to be recognized. In fact, if you have humility in your heart, listen, here's what it's gonna feel like. You will have a genuine joy when a coworker gets a promotion, even if you don't. You're gonna have a genuine joy when a fellow student receives a reward that you did not receive. You're gonna be genuinely happy when somebody else is blessed by God financially, even if you have to struggle week to week and day to day. That's what humility will look like and feel like in your life. See, humble people, watch. Humble people curve outward. Prideful people curve inward. Humble people lie low to the ground. In fact, listen, you will know when God is cultivating humility in your hearts because you really, 
you really begin to think about yourself less often. You're not even really in your thoughts that much. Now, if all you think about is you, or at least if most of who you think about is you and how miserable your life is and how terrible your life is, you are curving in. You are full of pride. It is the spring, the, lie, the, the sin below the sin, and it will break unity. And that doesn't mean humble people never think about themselves. Look at verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, pride puts the focus on yourself. Humility places it on others. Observe what dominates the majority of your prayer life. Listen, here's some practical ways to do it. Just watch what dominates your prayer life. Have you ever, you ever laid down below a ceiling fan and just really concentrated? And every once in a while, you can get that little freeze frame of one of those fans just for a split second. You can learn to do that in your life. The Bible calls this take captive your mind. Freeze frame it. In the middle of your praying, stop and think, who have I been praying for? What's been the thoughts in my prayer life? Have I been mainly praying for me? Pride is in your heart. Pride is in your heart. If you are irritable, you are a proud person. If you are easily offended, you are a proud person. If you are hypercritical, you are proud. If you forgive easily, you are humble. If you hate complaining in yourself and others, you are humble. If you praise people more than critique them, you are humble. If you focus on God and others more than yourself in prayer life, you are humble. If you will not confront somebody when they are in sin, if you will not tell them they've got food on their chin, you are prideful. You're embarrassed or fearful how they might react. It indicates where you're focused focus really is. Your focus is on you. If you need praise from others to feel good about yourself, you're proud. If criticism undoes you, you are proud. If you give significant weight to other people's opinions, listening to them carefully and thinking through them, knowing that they've got wisdom that you don't have, you are humble. If you are kind, you are humble. Humble people are not mousy. They are not feeble. They are not uncertain. They are not hesitant or timid or weak. They are strong people with a focus that is outward from them. Themselves. In fact, mousy, uncertain people are absolutely filled with pride. They are preoccupied on how others see themselves or on their own fears of failure. They always see themselves as inadequate or not comparing well. Well, where's their vision? It's not on other people. They're not curving outward in humility. They have bent themselves inward in pride. And the sin below the sin is what's driving their life. And that was point number one. And all we just did was dissect what Paul tells us to be, which is to be humble and to seek unity. 
But how do we actually do this? Now, if I sent you out of here right now, and I said, that's it. I hope you guys enjoy the rest of your evening and have a great weekend and a good week. Listen, I just committed what's called moralism. I just gave you a 10-ton weight. Be humble and stay unified and now figure out how to do it on your own. That is not gospel preaching. It's only what I'm about to teach you and where Paul goes that brings the gospel into it. So let's get there quickly. How can we be humble? How can we be humble? All right, well, let's at least start with this, all right? Let's see if you agree. Ready? Look up on the screen. God always provides the want to so we can do what we ought to. God will not give you a command, brother and sister, and then not lift a finger to help. You kidding me? Jesus absolutely eviscerated the scribes and Pharisees for doing that exact same thing. Oh, they put... Heavy weights and burdens on people, he said in Matthew 23, and they will not lift a finger to help. That's, that's moralism. No, we're talking about the gospel. And the gospel is God will change your heart so that you want to do what he tells you to do. And we're about to see him do that. He's going to give us new desires that will motivate us with the power to obey him, to love like him, to be humble like Jesus. The battle against our pride is one that he will fight with us as we walk with him. But there is a particular way that he will help us gain victory and not turn in ourselves. And I need to return to mouse and camel to show it to you. Now watch, you're going to see it here. So camel taught prideful mouse a lesson, and he took him to a nearby river to cross. And when little mouse saw the river... He was terrified. My good friend, great mouse, said Camel, brave mouse who guided me in the forest and the mountains. You are my guide. You walk across a river first and then I will follow you. But this water is too deep for me, Mouse said. I can't swim in it. So Camel stepped into the river to show the depth of the water and then he said, are you afraid of this shallow water that only comes to my knees? Asked Camel. Well, your knees are much taller than mine. You are very big. I am very small. The water that comes to your knees is a sea. It's an ocean for me, said Mouse. Yes, it is, Mouse. So why are you so arrogant, my friend? Why do you see yourself as superior to me and to others? Do you not realize that I served you because you are my friend? It is not because of your greatness or power. Don't be so prideful. And Mouse realized his mistake and apologized, and he never again forgot the lesson of humility. See, we're about to learn this same lesson, and we're going to learn it through a song. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 is a song. And it's a song that Paul wrote in the early church saying, and they sang it to each other to help each other lift up Jesus, who is great and superior, stay low to the ground so they can maintain humility and maintain un unity. 
Look what it says in verse 5. Paul says, have this mind, this mindset, this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus did not just rescue us from the judgment of our sin. And Jesus did not just set for us an example of humility. Listen, Jesus came to transform us, to give us new desires, to give us a new mind, new inclinations, new motivations of our heart that are gradually conforming to his very same mindset. You see, what Jesus came to do is to make us like him. This is why Paul could write, we have the mind of Christ. Christian, you have the mind of Christ. Now listen, does that mind have you? You have the mind of Christ, but does the mind of Christ have you? And how you can answer that is are you displaying humility to each other? See, Jonathan Edwards once wrote centuries ago, our perspective on humility can be radically changed if we will ponder and meditate on the greatest example of humility in history, Jesus Christ. It's another way of saying what I have told you this entire series. The key to transformation, the key to becoming like Jesus, Paul gives it clearly in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Beholding, considering, pondering, thinking. The glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The more you ponder Jesus, the more you think on Jesus, the more you see Jesus, the more you study about Jesus through his word, there's gonna be a work of transformation in you from one degree of glory to another. You will become like Jesus. The mind of Christ will have you. And even when you're curving outward and or inward in pride, he will begin to reverse that so that you curve outward in humility. But how does that work? Well, Romans chapter 12, 2, a lot of you know it, right? It says, do not any longer be conformed to the patterns of this world, but listen, be transformed, changed. Become somebody you weren't. How? By the renewing of your mind. Well, how does your mind renew? Well, I'm going to show you how it renews. You ready? I'm going to show you three ways through this passage that your mind can be renewed and you can be transformed to be a little bit more humble by the end of tonight. Let's watch. The mindset of Jesus, the mind of Jesus was one of selflessness. Look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves. In other words, let this mind have you which is yours in Christ Jesus. You've already got it. It's yours. You've got a new mind, a new heart. Now ponder Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. This is incredibly shocking. 
more than any of us can understand. We are used to hearing that each of us have been made in the image of God. But listen, here we learn that Jesus was made in the image of man. This is incredible. The divine squeezed into flesh. And though Jesus was fully God, now he is fully man. Why? So that he would be made like his brothers in every respect. He is fully human while maintaining full divinity. He is God in flesh. Now let me get a little bit more of the impact of this down into your heart. Would you leave a management position at work where you're being paid a pretty good salary to go back down to work on the line where you got to live week by week with a paycheck? Would you let go of your wealth? If you had wealth, would you let it go and give it away and help people that are poor live? Would you let go of your popularity at your school and voluntarily fall into obscurity where no one really pays attention to you? See, the more you behold the selflessness of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held onto, but he emptied himself, he left heaven, he came down to earth, he faced hunger, he faced cold, he didn't have a place to sleep, he felt pain. When you ponder that, and you will be transformed from one degree of glory to another. You see, it is Jesus who lived week to week entirely on the giving generosity of others. It was Jesus, though God in flesh, was so hungry in the wilderness when he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. It was Jesus who was so exhausted that he fell asleep in the back of a boat in the middle of a hurricane storm on the Sea of Galilee. It was Jesus who fell on his face in the Garden of Gethsemane with anxiety, sweating drops of blood and sweat because he knew that he was about to face the cross and all of your sins and my sins were going to be put on him. That's humility. He left heaven to come to earth. Well, let me show you a little bit more. The mindset of Jesus was one of servanthood. Look at verse seven, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. One of the clearest, clearest, listen to me, one of the clearest evidences. And this was so convicting to me. 
One of the clearest evidences that humility is growing in you, that you are gaining the mind of Jesus or it is gaining hold over you and curving you outward is your willingness to serve people. And Jesus said, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So how well do you serve? Do you serve people that you don't like? Do you serve people that are unkind to you? If your answer is no, then you are curved in, and that is the sin below the sin. But if you are gaining the willingness and the desire and the joy to serve even those who do not deserve it, that is the mind of Christ, that is humility, and it is gaining hold over you, and you will find great joy. Let me remind you and ponder Jesus. The night that he was in the upper room, hours before he was crucified, he got up from the table where he and the 12 disciples were lying down on their side, reclining at a feast. He got up, took off his outer garment, took a towel and a bowl of water, while the rest of the disciples were lying on the ground on cushions, he went from one to another and washed their feet. The job normally given to the lowest slave in a house. It was so audacious that Peter said, no, I will not let you wash my feet. Because I know who normally does it. And Jesus said, Peter, let you, unless you let me wash your feet, you can have nothing to do with me. Do you remember one set of feet that he washed? Belonged to Judas. Who would leave moments after that to betray him. One man who he invested three years of his life and loved betrayed him. Yet Jesus still served him. Can you not serve those who you do not get along with? In fact, the more you serve them, the more your heart will follow and you will begin to love. You see, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me give you one more. The mindset of Jesus was one of sacrifice. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the absolute center of humility, the willingness to obey God even to the point of death. It is saying to God, whatever it takes, even the loss of my reputation, whatever it takes, even the loss of my rights or the loss of my wealth or the loss of my friends, I will sacrifice all of that in order to serve you. One of my favorite missionaries ever is a man named C.T. Studd, who was a wealthy wealthy man and a prestigious university in England. And yet God called him to serve him alongside at first Hudson Taylor in China. And then C.T. Studd went to Africa 
actually very, very close to where we started Restoring Hope Ministry in New Belgium, and he started a ministry there. C.T. Studd gave up all of his family's wealth, all of his prestige to go serve the Lord because humility says nothing is worth holding on to rather than be obedient to Jesus. And look at the result to Jesus in verse 9. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is the name that is above every other name? Listen, it is not Jesus. He already had that name. It is Yahweh. It is Jesus. Jehovah, it is the greatest name of God, and Jesus was given that name by the Father. Why? Because he was humble to the point of death. You see, the way up is by going down. The way to be exalted is by descending into humility. And God, in due time, will exalt you. Well, I'm going to show you as I close seven ways to learn to be humble. If you have your phones out, I would encourage you to take a picture of this. And here's what I'm asking you to do. Everybody that's got a smartphone, I want you to take a picture of this if you would. Zoom it in on that screen because I want you to take one of these per day this week. And I want you to keep it top of mind, front and center. And I want you to fight for humility. This is by a guy named Thomas Watson. It is incredibly effective. And I'm going to be doing this with you. We're going to leave it up for a little bit longer. But here they are. The humble are increasingly weaned from themselves, losing their preoccupation, thinking less of themselves and more of others. That's Monday. Tuesday, the humble are lost in the wonder of Christ, wanting nothing more than to be transformed to be like him. That would be Tuesday. Wednesday, the humble do not complain. The next day, the humble more clearly see the strengths and virtues in others and celebrate them rather than get jealous of them. And then the humble will spend increasing amounts of time in prayer. The humble take Christ on his terms, readily submitting to his word, whatever it asks. And then by the end of the week, the humble will constantly praise God and make much of his grace. Can you do that this week? Take one per day and just focus on that. Father, I thank you. Lord, right before Pastor Tony comes up, Lord, I thank you that you have given to us who are in Christ your mind. But Lord, we need to walk with you so that that your mind has us. We might have it, but it may not have us. Lord, humility lies low to the ground. It curves outward from ourselves. Pride curves life back in. Father, may we confess and repent of our pride and fight for humility. Let us exalt you. Let us see you. Let us ponder you. Let us consider you and how humble you are so that we could be transformed from one degree of glory to another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.